Let us pray. O Lord, giver of all good things, it is good to give you thanks for all your benefits. We have gone astray, and you have brought us back. Keep your promises, keep us in faith, give us the good reward of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning is from the 119th Psalm, the ninth stanza, verses 65 through 72. Please rise. You have done well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good taste and knowledge, for I have propped myself up on your commandments. Before I felt affliction, I was, I was astray, but now I keep your sayings. You are good and do good. Teach me your engraved commands. The proud have patched together a lie against me. I, with all my heart, will treasure up your regulations. Their heart is as fat as lard, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have felt affliction, because I have learned your engraved commands. The law of your mouth is better for me than a thousand pieces of gold and silver. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. <clears throat> when Hebrew students are beginning to learn the language, one of the first words we learn is tov which is the word for good. And that word tov begins with this Hebrew letter tate, making that T sound. And there are plenty of other words in the Hebrew language that begin with tate. But David was directed by the Holy Spirit to begin five out of these eight lines in this stanza with tov, for good, and to include even one more instance of tov in this stanza in the middle of one of the lines. So it's obvious that goodness is a major theme of this stanza. And why not? There is a unity between God and good. In the large catechism, Luther asks, What does it mean to have a God? Or what is a God? Answer, a God means that from which we are to expect all good, and in which we are to take refuge in all distress. So as the small catechism states, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And why? Simply because all that God gives is good. And this stems first from the fact that He is good and He does good. Also in the large catechism, Luther writes, We are to trust in God alone and look to Him and expect from Him nothing but good. As from one who gives us body, life, food, drink, nourishment, health, protection, peace, and all necessaries of both temporal and eternal things. He also preserves us from misfortune. And if any evil befall us, he delivers and rescues us. So it is God alone, as has been said well enough, from whom we receive all good and by whom we are delivered from all evil." In the psalm, our prayer is, You have done well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. And that means that we recall all the good that God has done to us and for us, which are all fulfillments of his promises. He declared in his scripture that he would provide a blessing, and that blessing has come, up, come about. 
St. Paul explains the promises God spoke referred to Abraham and to his seed. It doesn't say unto seeds as if it were referring to many, but as referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came into being 430 years after the covenant established earlier by God in Christ, does not annul that covenant with the result that it invalidates the promise. In fact, if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by the promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham by a promise. And this is the overarching blessing that we must remember, that in Christ you have forgiveness, life, and salvation. Through the word and sacraments of God, He gives you grace covering you with Jesus' righteousness and declaring you holy. Jesus died for you, and therefore you died, and therefore you live. And the best way to be sure of future blessings is to remember past blessings. That makes this prayer so important. You have done well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. That God has given us every blessing He has ever promised to give. God's promises are never annulled, and therefore we can be bold to petition Him for further blessings, all according to His promise. Teach me good taste and knowledge, for I have propped myself on your commandments. On the basis of God's commandments, that foundation, that home base, our walking stick, along the way we prop ourselves on those commandments, therefore we learn good taste And we learn knowledge from God. And those are two things to pay close attention to. Good taste, or good judgment, as some translations render it. That's a pair of words which both begin with the letter Tate. Tuv ta'am. Tuv ta'am, an alliterative masterpiece in that poetry that tastes good to say itself. Tuv ta'am. Hebrew uses those words just as we do, so that good taste means discernment and proper understanding of what is good and beautiful and valuable. An education in liberal arts can be said to teach this good taste because it teaches students how to learn, how to think critically. Knowledge is good, but without restraint it can be very, very bad. In the film Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum's character Ian Malcolm criticizes the scientists who created those terrorizing dinosaurs. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. That is knowledge with bad taste. Dr. Frankenstein falls into the same category, along with numerous other villains in the horror genre and even real people like Dr. Mengele, of Holocaust infamy, or L. Ron Hubbard, who founded Scientology, and even Adam and Eve, who saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was appealing to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And therefore, all their children are cursed in the same way. We take pride in our knowledge and let it run unfettered. If we know something, even if that knowledge comes from one news source or one social media post, how violently don't we argue for its truth? Original sin might be said to manifest very often in our and my innate need to be right. 
We need to be right. Even if that means that everyone else around us, even if that means that God is wrong. Teach me good taste and knowledge, for I have propped myself on your commandments. Bad taste, bad judgment seeks to put whatever knowledge that we have gained into the seat of Godhood. If we know something, that becomes our God. Never mind what the true God has said, what we know is greater. So comes the theory of evolution, so comes the theory of the Big Bang, so comes every single man-made religion and every denial of the truth of the Word. But God meant knowledge to serve the truth, if it is accompanied with good taste. You and I need instruction, and we even need instruction in how to be instructed. Good taste. And we see that we know where we can get it. It comes from God. It comes from His commandments. And it comes from His Word. But we are stubborn creatures. And we love our own knowledge. And we love our own sins. Our sinful flesh, therefore, absolutely hates the next verse. Before I felt affliction, I was astray. But now I keep your sayings. Read that again. Before I felt affliction, I was astray. But now I keep your sayings. For better or for worse, our culture right now looks very poorly on corporal punishment, literally meaning punishment upon the body. I'm not going to comment on parenting techniques, but I will comment on our reactions. When you heard that verse, did your defenses go up just a little bit? Are you saying that I deserved to be punished? Are you saying I needed to be disciplined back into faith? Are you saying my suffering was necessary evil, a means to some happy ending, and now that any time I suffer, I should just think about how God will make some Hallmark movie happy ending out of, what, out of all of it. Why do we react that way? It's because, again, we think we're right. We think our rightness is our God. And while it's true that some people do use verses like this to minimize the reality of suffering, that's not the point. In fact, sometimes... The opposite is the point. When you're suffering something, when you're going through perhaps the most difficult time of your entire life, have you ever heard this from friends and family, how they faced something difficult, and then it all turned out in the end, how God used their suffering to bring about greater blessings? You hear examples of men who missed their train only to find out that that train went off the rails, killing everyone on board. The moral of these stories is, of course, that God has everything in control and is directing your life according to His Word. And that's true, but it also minimizes the affliction. The word for being afflicted, anah, is also used in Hebrew for tilling a field. The illustration should be a clear one here, that you are the field and God tills you in order to sow his word. And tilling involves breaking up the hardened ground and even moving away the rocks, ripping them out. A freshly plowed field looks as though it has been gashed with deep wounds. But from those wounds sprouts new life. 
This is the point. If we think that we can do things on our own, if we don't need God, then we will remain dead and unfruitful. Affliction is used by God to be a way for us to see our renewed need for God and how His promises remain true even through those darkest valleys. Luther uses the Latin word tentatio and the German word anfectung for this affliction, which both words imply a sort of wrestling match that a person has with God. And we can think of Jacob's wrestling match. Jacob was left alone, and he wrestled with a man there until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh, and the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated as he wrestled. The man said, let me go, it's daybreak. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And this man turned out to be God himself, and Jacob did receive the blessing that he demanded. And that's the point. When you or I are afflicted, when we suffer, we're forced to remember God's promises. His promises to save us, to take us out of pain, to forgive us. And we start to wonder where those promises of God, bless us, Lord, we cry. We flee to Jesus in our distress, and there God does indeed bless us. That doesn't mean he's going to remove the affliction. He might not. Jacob remained with a limp the rest of his life. Paul kept a thorn in his side. But God will neither remove himself. We keep his sayings. We hold on to his promises. Even when we face such trials and temptations, therefore, we can say, You are good and do good. Teach me your engraved commands. Luther, again in the large catechism, says, So I think we Germans from ancient times name God more elegantly and appropriately than any other language from the word good. Gott is God and gut is good in German. They're related words. It's as though he were an eternal fountain that gushes forth abundantly doing nothing but what is good. And from that fountain flows forth all that is and is called good. And English now, which is derived largely from a form of German, does this same thing. The word God in English is related to the word good. God is good and only does good. So instruction from him can only be good. You might hear the phrase, God is good, proclaimed aloud when someone hears of a blessing. Grandmothers say it when grandchildren are born. Some say it when an accused loved one is acquitted of a crime. Farmers say it when a crop is spared against a wildfire. Someone might even say it aloud when a larger-than-expected Christmas bonus arrives. But will we say it when a loved one dies? Or when a tornado destroys a town? Or when we've lost everything? Teach me your engraved commands, we pray. And this is the fourth time in this psalm that that exact petition has been stated. Teach me your engraved commands. The last time we said it was at the end of the last stanza. Your mercy, O Lord, fills the earth. Teach me your engraved commands. See again, it's based on God's goodness and mercy. 
that we seek instruction in His engraved commands. The grooves that He digs and engraves are good. They guide us to good. They continue to provide us good even through pain. But affliction comes from numerous sources, including the enemies of this world. The proud have patched together a lie against me, we say. I, with all my heart, will treasure up your regulations. Think about this for a moment, that the speaker is being brought low, like the tax collector, and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he is justified. The proud one, the Pharisee in that parable, can't allow that. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, along with the ruling Sanhedrin and many others, couldn't allow that either. Instead, they brought out lies against Jesus. We read in the Gospels, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Luther offers this paraphrase of this verse. They have charged me with false crimes, or they have slandered me, saying that I am destroying the law of Moses and teaching departure from it, even though I am rather establishing it, but not like them. I, with all my heart, will treasure up your regulations, says the speaker. Not merely with his hands does he treasure them, he treasures them with all his heart. The proud hold to the letter of the law, thinking that by outward perfection they earn more merit, but the truly pious hold to the Spirit, knowing that true perfection comes only from Christ, and it comes through the Word, and it's given to the heart. Luther also offers another paraphrase which can be held at the same time. They, the proud, want to be righteous by the righteousness of their own works, so that they do not need the righteousness of Christ and faith in Him, lest they be humbled before Him and obey Him. So the lie that they patch together, you see, is that they can earn their own righteousness before God. The lie is their own knowledge without good taste, set up contrary to God's Word. But what is the truth of the matter? Their heart is as fat as lard, but I delight in your law. Their hearts are fat, weighed down with no real nourishment, but full of what's attractive and puffed up. Instead, the true heart is full only of God's word, God's law, God's spirit and truth. Satan tempted Jesus to fill his own belly. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And again, we see here how our human nature delights in anything that doesn't truly offer any real benefit. Like a child who would prefer to eat candy and cookies to carrots and cabbage. We prefer to illuminate our own righteousness, our own knowledge, our own strength, our own abilities, and not to rely completely, wholly, entirely on God's grace and mercy. And therefore, our sinful flesh is pricked again in this stanza, it is good for me that I have felt affliction, because I have learned your engraved commands. Think of that field being tilled again, Picture here your own heart where the engraved commands of God are engraved into you, tattooed onto your heart. 
The affliction is here, plain and simple, called good. It's a teacher. Affliction and suffering is a teacher, a good teacher. It doesn't teach us that whoever does God's commandments will live a long and happy life, while those who disobey will die painfully. Solomon, the wisest man of all, said the opposite. Everything turns out the same for everyone. One destination waits for the righteous and the wicked and the good and the ceremonially clean and the unclean, the one who brings sacrifices and the one who does not. As it will be for the good, so it will be for the sinner. So it's very clear that horrible circumstances, even death, come to the good as well as to the evil. Our answer can say, of course, everyone is evil, and we all deserve death, and that's true, but that's really only part of the story. The affliction is turned into good for those who have faith. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. That requires some faith. And faith is given only by God. Through his word, he causes us to know his truth. And therefore, we can only call those afflictions good when we have learned his engraved commands. This doesn't mean we've seen how everything has worked out in the end with each and every pain that we've suffered. We might understand some of them. We might understand how one grief causes us to be able to comfort others with a similar grief. We might understand how one injury puts us in contact with others who need to hear the gospel. But even in those things, we don't understand the full extent of the good that is made of those afflictions. Instead, we learn this simple truth, that God is good. Imagine Jesus speaking these words, It is good for me that I have felt affliction because I have learned your engraved commands. Jesus studied and learned the law, which, of course, according to his divine nature, he already knew, but according to his human nature, he grew in that understanding and wisdom. And in that word of God, he understood the commands that he had to keep. He understood the things written in stone that God said would come to pass. And he understood that he, Jesus, the Son of God, would suffer and die for the sins of the world. Father, if you are willing, Jesus said, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so he understood that it was good for him to be afflicted. Because by that affliction, Jesus would save you. If that affliction, that extreme suffering of God himself could be good, then you can be absolutely certain that whatever affliction you are facing is also by God's power and grace made good. It won't feel like it. You will be brought low. You might whimper and cry in physical, emotional, or spiritual pain, but what you can be certain of through it all is that God is there. It is good simply because God is there. Jesus is there who has literally felt your pain and bears the scars even on a perfect glorified body. So this stanza ends, The law of your mouth is better for me than a thousand pieces of gold and silver. Better 
of course, is the comparative form of good. It's good, but better. And here we see the law of God, which came out of his own mouth, is better than any riches. It's that pearl of great price for which we can be willing to sell all our possessions. And perhaps it's better here to think of losing all our possessions. We might lose our jobs, our incomes, our homes, our friends, our families, even our lives, in order to hold on to this word. And your Lord Jesus says to you, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. In fact, that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that reward in heaven, that's not just something we look forward to after we die or in the resurrection on the last day, although it does mean that. But it also means the reward you have right now as you live right now in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God's grace. You have the joy of knowing right now that you live with your Savior. You live with Jesus. You have God with you and for you forever. Wherever affliction comes from, you have the greatest good strengthening you and filling you, God himself. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.